Recovery Elevator, episode 230. The drinking was almost involuntary. It was just kind of happening to me, it felt like. You know, I, I would start and I couldn't stop. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Mark. He's 43 years old. He's a father of two. He's from Perth, which is in Western Australia. He's been sober since April 30th, 2019. And he talks about how quitting drinking got easier when he finally ditched the idea that one day he could moderate. Alcohol is shit. A book update. I'm hoping to have the book launched mid-August or my sobriety date, September 7th. I've got the graphics done for the front, the back, the ebook. It's really starting to come together. And thank you, everybody who's helped. I had a ton of people vote on which covers they liked the best. I had a lot of people vote on the tagline, the subtitles. Um, and this is what we came up with. How to ditch the booze, reignite your life, and recover the person you were always meant to be. Yeah, I'm excited to put this book out there into the world. Thank you, everybody who's been a part of it. And that's basically you who's listened. You're part of this journey. You helped me make this book come to reality. So thank you. Okay, before we go any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private, unsearchable Facebook groups, Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to Stephanie D, who just hit 6.5 months alcohol free. Uh, We're not done yet. Shout out to Jerry in Canada, who just hit 49 days. Nice job. Okay, let's get started. Today, we're going to talk about calming the mind through meditation. Uh Uh-oh, I know some of you guys shuddered when you heard the word meditation. So I know meditation can be a nebulous topic. And my goal today is to somewhat destigmatize the practice and answer some questions you may have about it. Okay, so here's what I'm hoping to cover today. A brief history, what it is, what it isn't, why it can be so hard at first. Let's cover mindfulness versus meditation. Uh, Let's talk about why we meditate and why this is so important in sobriety. Let's talk about how to meditate, a couple different types. We'll talk about posture. We're going to talk about the power of mass meditations. And after the interview, I'm going to talk about the six-day silent meditation retreat uh, that I went on uh, at the end of May. And we'll talk about some mystical experiences, some mystical journeys that people have gone on during meditations. Okay, let's do this. Let's get started. So a brief history. The word meditation stems from meditatum, 
which is, I think it's how you say that, which is a Latin term that means to ponder. It is rumored the Buddha achieved enlightenment after meditating under a Bodha tree for seven straight days. Other sources say seven straight weeks. Regardless, that's a long time. Some of the earliest written records of meditation, dhyana, come from the Hindu traditions around 1500 BCE. Around the 6th or 5th centuries BCE, other forms of meditation developed in the Taoist China and Buddhist India. So meditation, unlike Fortnite, is nothing new. Okay, what meditation is? It's about letting thoughts go. Now, Andy from the Headspace app has a great analogy for this. Imagine a dog sitting on the side of a busy road, and instead of running after each car, a biker, motorcycle, etc., that drives by, it simply sits. It observes those thoughts, turns its head left to right, watches the cars, the runners, the joggers, the motorcycles go by without chasing any car. Meditation is about loosening the energetic ties to the past and future. This is accomplished each and every time you bring your attention back to the breath or the present moment. Meditation is about turning the focus within with your most important ally on this journey called awareness. It's about being present and focusing on what is the reality you're currently witnessing. Meditation is no judgment or labeling of thoughts. It's putting the body and mind in an environment where the healing happens on its own. It's about lowering brain waves to a more relaxed state. So all these brain waves have a different electromagnetic frequency range, but to avoid going down a rabbit hole, we're going to leave the exact frequency ranges out, but we're going to cover the different brain waves real quick. So beta brain waves, these are the brain waves you experience throughout your waking day. Then we have alpha brain waves. And this is the more relaxed state, and you should be able to reach this frequency sweet spot within four to five minutes of meditation. In some deeper meditations, it's possible to go into theta brain waves. This is where you access the third eye, which is blind. Whoa, holy shit, I just dropped a third eye blind reference, and it had nothing to do with the band. Incredible. So when we are daydreaming, we experience theta brain waves. And the last is delta. And this is what we experience at night when we are in our deepest sleep patterns. It's when we are in deep sleep or in this delta brain wave pattern that we promote anti-aging hormones. So it's a good idea to meditate either right after you wake up or right before you go to bed because you're closer to these alpha and theta brain wave states. Meditation is a skill that takes practice. And meditation is a way to get high. Yep, I just said that on a recovery podcast. The difference is you get high on love, compassion, gratitude, and light. I've had some meditations that have left me with such an intense warmth in the heart, infinitely more warmth than alcohol ever gave me. Okay, now let's talk about what meditation is not. So it isn't not thinking. So it's not like you're meditating and you have a thought and you say, damn it, I'm no longer meditating. Like I said, it's about letting those thoughts go. Meditation isn't about getting or attaining anything. Meditation isn't about discovering who you are, but more about who you aren't. Meditation isn't hypnosis or going into a trance. Meditation isn't just for Buddhist monks or Zen masters. Anybody can do this. Meditation is not running away from reality. Many people will say, yo, get off the cushion and face your problems. The irony in this is 
that meditation can be the most form of facing our uncomfortable life situations and problems. Meditation isn't selfish. It all starts from the inside out. Huh, who says that? You first need to heal the healer you before you can help others. There is no way to have a bad meditation. All meditations are good. Meditation isn't a quick fix, but a continued practice. So why can meditation be so hard at first? Well, the instant you depart from the known, you sit down, you close your eyes, and you bring your presence to the present moment, your thought and attention to the moment that's right now, chemicals will be produced to make you feel uncomfortable because you've broken the routine. That routine usually is living in the past and living in the future. So when all of your atomic energetic thoughts are in the past and the future and you bring them back in the present moment, the body says, holy shit, what in the hell is going on? Chemicals, which can be chemically measured, which can be scientifically measured, will be produced and you'll feel uncomfortable. However, keep pushing past this, keep putting your butt in the seat, and you can get past this initial uncomfortable phase. Meditation can be hard at first because it can be a total shock to the system, just like quitting drinking was, but we're getting past that. Meditation can be hard because you've heard the phrase, the mind, well, that mind has a mind of its own. Calming the mind at first, settling down the thoughts for your first several meditations, 10, 20, 50, 100 meditations is difficult. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a practice and it takes just that practice. Meditation can be hard at first because the protective personality, aka the ego, feels threatened. Yes, this ego, which only resides in the past and the future, no longer exists in the present moment. So this ego, this protective personality, will start chirping. It's going to make some compelling arguments to get your ass out of that seat. Go start your day. We got things to do, people to see, people to call. We have a long to-do list. That's just the ego, the protective personality saying, hey, I'm here, but let's blast through that. So meditation versus mindfulness. Well, I feel this is the Western world's concession that meditation does have a place on this side of the globe, but uh, we'll call it something different. Let's go with mindfulness. Typical move, Western world. <laughs> so mindfulness is placing intense focus on whatever action you are currently doing. No multitasking. Well, unless you work at the Olive Garden. Let's talk about why we meditate. So meditation, you can't change what's going on outside, but you can change what's going on inside. Meditation has been proven to help focus. We are constantly pinged, dinged, rung, notified, beeped, etc. these days. And meditation can help us go back to the task we were previously doing. Meditation induces relaxation, which leads to less stress. It decreases inflammation at the cellular level. It's been proven to increase productivity by doing nothing. How cool is that? And businesses are starting to see this as well. My buddy works at a dog toy factory here in Bozeman called Westpaw, and they have weekly meditations at lunch hour. So cool. On an elementary level, if you're meditating, then you're not drinking. Meditation is powerful because feelings have to be felt. The why behind our drinking will surface at the body's pace. Only what we can handle will bubble to the surface and nothing more. Trust me on this. With meditation, you're building a coping skill that isn't reliant on anything else. This can be done anywhere at any time. Meditation, it's going to cultivate joy, which is the holy grail on this journey. For fast-acting relief, try slowing down. I get it. We're all busy, 
but the days I don't meditate, I get less done. It's crazy. So let's talk about how to meditate. And we just covered the why, which is more important than the how, because there are infinite ways to meditate. Um, perhaps you may have heard of transcendental meditation. This is TM, which is traditionally where you repeat a word, mantra, and sound over and over with intense focus. There are walking meditations. There are moving meditations in the form of yoga. And there's a commonality between all the types of meditation, and that's the breath. So here's a great practice you can start with. Sit comfortably with your eyes closed. Breathe in for a count of four seconds. Breathe out for a count of four seconds. Repeat for 20 minutes. And remember, let the thoughts go. Another way to meditate is to simply count each breath. Go up to 50, then go to 100, then go to 150. This should be about four to eight breaths per minute. And as my man Eckhart Tolle would say, work on developing this meditation skill off the cushion. Sometimes it's not practical or possible to hit the timeout button on life, step into a quiet climate-controlled room, and meditate. So we want to find ways to meditate throughout all parts of the day. Technology is awesome these days when it comes to meditation. There are great apps for this. Check out Insight Timer, Headspace, and Calm. What about posture? Do you need to sit down in the Indian style and say, Om for 20 minutes straight? Oh yeah, did you know Om is the sound you'll get when you compile all known sounds in the universe? Pretty cool. Okay, but back to posture. Let me simplify this for you. Get comfortable. If you can sit in the classic loaded seated meditation position for 20 minutes straight, comfortably without rupturing the ligament, then go for it. I personally cannot. And if you can't either, then have a seat. Just beware of lying down because, well, you might fall asleep. So once in a comfortable position, close the eyes, put the tongue on the roof of the mouth, and just be. Oh, mass meditations. This is a cool topic, and we're going to see more and more of these in the future. I'm hoping within the next 5, 10, 15 years, we see football stadiums full of people performing mass meditations. Who knows? This might be my next project. So Joe Dispenza, the author of Becoming Supernatural, is currently doing this at his retreats. An incredible study done with mass meditations is covered in David Wilcox's book, The Source Field Investigations. He explores a scientifically controlled study done in 1978 with a group of 7,000 expert meditators. The group meditated together for a period of three weeks, focusing on thoughts of love and peace. Shockingly, it was found that during the same three-week time frame, there was a 16% drop in crime on a global scale. Suicides and car accidents also dropped, and global terrorism dropped by 72% during this three-week period. Researchers and scientists were even more astonished when they ruled out possible variables such as weather, holidays, global events, and anything else that could have caused such a decline. There was nothing in particular that was different during this three-week period, except there were 7,000 meditators sending love and world peace throughout the planet. So this study has been replicated over and over with the same results. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. So it can be inferred that we are all tapped in to one consciousness. And after we hear from Mark, I'm going to talk to you guys about my five and a half day silent meditation retreat experience that I had this last May. But before we hear from Mark, let's hear from today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? 
In early sobriety, I experienced some intense cravings to feel differently, and I wanted to use alcohol to make that happen. It's helpful to talk to somebody about these cravings. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. That's Better, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. And join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. For Recovery Elevator listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash elevator. Mark, how are you? Good, Paul. How are you going? Mark, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Just over seven weeks now seven weeks and a couple of days seven weeks couple of days and you mentioned april 30th of 2019 is your sobriety date nice job how does it feel mark uh yeah it's feeling really good so far I, i've gone longer than this before but um but you know I'm, I'm happy to be here again perfect yeah we're going to talk about how most of 2017 you spent without alcohol and in the email you sent to me you mentioned you tapped on mostly to willpower or were a dry drunk and you made some changes and it should be different this time uh, this time around. Um, and listeners, Mark is on the other side of the globe. I think we have the audio um, issues figured out. We we switched internet connections, made a couple changes before, but just bear with us. That's how these uh, interviews and internet connections go sometimes. So, But yeah, Mark, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I live in Perth in Western Australia, which is uh, which is one of the most remote cities in the world. Uh, for work, I'm a commercial and financial professional, uh, so white-collar sort of professional job. Uh, I'm 43 years old, and I'm married with two daughters. Uh, for fun, I've got, I guess, fairly simple uh, tastes. I like camping and exercising and reading, uh, and lately I've gotten into a, a bit of a self-indulgent, crazy stand-up bike called uh, the Elliptigo, which is, which is made in America, actually, and um, it's a lot of fun. What a stand-up bike. Tell us more about that. What does that look like? Yeah, so it's a it's a big long thing with instead of pedals, it's got these kind of footboards, and it's almost it'll, it'll look as if you're running while you're while you're on it, and then it's got these long arms behind the, the pedals, which power um a, a, a big sort of cog at the back of, of the of the bike, and it's got sort of big tall set of handlebars at the front, so it goes about I can get get it going at about twenty miles an hour. Wow, I wish uh, I was about to pull like the Joe Rogan move and be like, hey Ty, can you pull that up? On, on the internet, we're not quite there yet with the production quality, but I think I can imagine that. Um, and, uh, and listeners, yeah. before, uh, before I hit record, I asked Mark, I always ask questions about when people from other countries, and he mentioned uh, it's like a five-day drive from east to west or west to east across Australia. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Gosh, that island is massive. Yeah, it is. It's a big place. Yeah, and during sound test, he also said it's five degrees Celsius, probably, it's probably 12 no, no, that's got to be, uh, I lived in Spain for a while. It was probably 48, uh, 48 degrees. 
other side of the world. Maybe listeners have already put two two together. I'm still fascinated by the uh, the tilt of the world on its axis. Okay, Mark, um, let's move forward. Give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits when you first started. What was it like? The progression when you first started to realize that alcohol was a problem. Yeah, sure. So I guess like a lot of people, I, I started in my teens, got hold of some alcohol with some friends and, and tried it out, you know, sort of when, when the parents were out. I, I pretty much immediately took a liking to it. You know, it, it made me feel like a different person, got me out of my shell a lot. And, you know, just, just that buzz really, um, you know, I, I took to that buzz really straight away. Pattern sort of continued through my early 20s. So I went to uh, what you would call college and, and sort of got, it, got involved in the drinking culture there. After that, an interesting period in my 20s, I, I sort of got pretty serious about, about my running. So I was doing that as a sport and sort of trained really hard on that for three or four years. That was, that was kind of a tough life in a lot of ways, you know, training twice a day, getting lots of sleep, eating the right things. Uh, so there was no drinking for 49 weeks a year. But then at the end of the season, three weeks a year, you'd, you'd sort of let off steam and, and do, a lot, do a lot of drinking in those three weeks. But for most of the year I, at that time, I could go without drinking. Once that finished, it, I think that was a bit of a, a turning point. Once I once I sort of stopped being a serious runner and, and went out and, and got my first job and didn't have that discipline in my life anymore. So I think there, there was a bit of a turning point there where where it sort of really crept upwards. The the drinking became close to close to every day, you know, work events and all that sort of thing. By this point, nudging towards the 30s, and it was it was just an ongoing trend, I suppose, you know. And for for someone in their 30s, uh, you know, to still be drinking till throwing up or, or sometimes passing out, all, all of that sort of thing was happening. And, you know, there was a few times in there, both in my 20s and 30s, I think, where I had had the odd really bad night and just swore off drinking. But, um, you know, I didn't quite start again the same day, but it generally only took a week for me to, to go back to it. And I guess then my, uh, you know, in my 40s, uh, just a couple of years ago, I had that, that first serious attempt at sobriety in 2017. Gotcha. In 2017, you're, you're 40 years old, I imagine, right? 41. Yep. Okay. You're 41 years old in 2017. You mentioned you went a good chunk of the year of 2017 dry on willpower alone. And what propelled that? Did you wake up one day and just say, look, I want to see if I can do this? Or was there like a rock bottom moment? Look, there wasn't a specific rock bottom moment. I think it was just a, a series of, of bad nights. And I think at some level, I just realized I, the drinking was almost involuntary. It was just kind of happening to me it felt like you know i i would start and i couldn't stop and i i think you know what what happened was it was just one night on, on an ordinary work night where i i got through two bottles of wine got into work feeling horrendous um you know got in late uh, my my head was not not working too well and i just decided i'd had enough so i did a bit of googling on cutting back found a, a website that was quite popular in australia at the time called um hello sunday morning where yeah. people would, would, would write blog posts and, and talk about cutting down alcohol. And, and it would, the website encouraged doing either a three-month or a 12-month innings without alcohol. So I just, I just decided to do a three-month innings to begin with. Got through that. I was really happy with myself and, and I was kind of I was happy with how it was all going. So I decided to, to try and crack on for 12 months. So I look back on it and, and it was a really good year. You know, I... I got quite healthy. I got a lot done at work. You know, it was just productive at home. You know, it, it really was, was an amazing year in a lot of ways. What, what I didn't have, and, and I guess we can talk about this more shortly is, well, you know, hang on, Mark. Let me, let me, let me ask you to unpack a couple of things you said earlier. It was, yeah. you know, drinking became involuntary. I know that struck a chord with many mm -hmm. listeners, including myself. I know a little bit about how that felt, but I want you to explain a little bit more on that and also touch up upon when you started to realize that it was getting harder to stop once you started. 
Yeah, sure. So I, I suppose, you know, it, it, it had just become such a habit. You know, I was drinking uh, beer and wine were my drinks of choice. It sort of became, you know, any time I caught up with people, uh, I would drink and I would, I would drink hard. It was it was not just, just one or two beers. I wasn't just drinking because I liked the, the taste of beer and wine. I was always drinking to, to get at least a buzz, if not to get, you know, properly drunk. And, you know, it was, it was a strange feeling to, to sort of al- almost run your life around alcohol. Like I would never meet someone at a cafe. It was always at a pub or a bar uh, or at a house where there was alcohol. And when you say it was um, a strange feeling, what do you mean by that? I, I think at some level, you know, I, I was a bit unsettled by the fact that, that I had to always have alcohol. Oh, and, okay. you know, so often waking up hungover. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it it was a compulsion. It wasn't something I was doing because I enjoyed it, although I think at the time I told myself I did enjoy it. Really, it, you know, looking back, it was it was a pretty clear addiction and compulsion, something that I, you know, just kind of had to have in my life. And, you know, once I started, it was it was never one, two or three drinks. It was it was always at least a bottle of wine or, um, or you know, five or six beers, but but often more. Did you ever successfully win that battle? Say, hey, tonight I'm only having two or three and we were able to pull it off? Looking for short-term bursts, yes. There would be incidences of me, you know, trying to manage it. Um, so limiting myself to, to four drinks a day or, um, you know, not drinking Monday through Thursday or, um, you know, financial limits, all, all of these kind of management schemes for, for moderating. I, I tried them all. I came up with all sorts of crazy schemes, but uh, none of them, none of them stuck. I was able to do that, but it was so painful. And the further along I got, it became harder and harder. Yeah, I, I like how you described yeah. it. And so you're cruising through 2017, dry, yeah. on willpower. Yeah. How much time did you get? Yep. So I didn't make the 12 months. So I, I made it to around mid-August. And I can remember that date because my wife and I at that time bought, bought our dream house. So we moved in and I'd, I'd said to her, so here's where the lack of accountability shows. Um, I'd said to her, oh, look, when, when we've moved in, we'll have a bottle of champagne together to, to celebrate. I'll, I'll make an exception for that event. And so, you know, we did. So whatever that is, nine, nine months in or seven months in, you know, just had a bottle of, of champers together. And then, you know, it, it kind of from there it became, well, for, for the rest of the year, I'm not going to tell anyone else I'm drinking again, but I'll, I'll still drink with you at home. Sure. So your plan was to and share the bottle of champagne and then go back to being dry? Yeah, but but immediately, as soon as I'd had that bottle of champagne, I think the wheels came off that plan. Sure, uh, but, but did it happen in a so, way? Because this happened to me in 2012, where like the first couple times drinking, I was like, hey, you know, I didn't end up in jail, no DUIs, the hangovers were okay, I think I can do this again. Was that a similar thread, where it wasn't terrible from the start, and you thought you could pick back up? Yeah, and I, I think at, at some level, going um, about eight or nine months, uh, whatever, whatever, that maths works out to be, you know, without without drinking, it, it allowed me to think that I had changed my relationship with alcohol, and that I could just go and have a few drinks now and, and stop because look, I've just just done an eight month dry spell. Uh, if I can do that, surely a bottle of champagne and and maybe the odd drink here or there is is now going to be fine. But you know, it, it was probably a month or so after that bottle of champagne that I that I was drinking practically as hard as as in the, in all the years before again. Now, a month later, you ramp up. Was there a moment when you said, oh, shit, like that that happened fast? And did you start to question, like, what is really going on here? Uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I really didn't, actually. I just I just kind of got back into it, and, and all of those questions just kind of faded away. So, yeah, to, by 2018, I basically told people, yeah, I had, had most of a dry year, and um, 
and now I'm now I'm drinking again. I you know I've got a different relationship with alcohol now. But you know it was I think really that was that was a a supreme exercise of self deception on my part. Did you believe it though? I think yeah, at some level I I, I did, but at, at some level I, I guess there there was maybe a bit of a gnawing feeling in the background that that wasn't true because I you know I I did in 2018 have have you know mornings where I woke up and I blacked out and um just terrible hangovers and getting through two bottles of wine and that, that sort of thing. So so when did the um, self deception end? I love how you said that. Yeah, you know, really only sort of this year around around April 30, I suppose. So yeah, if we if we fast forward to April this year, April 29th was not a, a rock bottom type event by any means. It was just a night at home. My wife and I had had some some wine together. She went to bed. I I stayed up and said, oh, I'm just going to go and go and hang out in the um. There's a bit of bushland behind our house, so I just just sort of went out there. Uh, I I just go out there sometimes and just just sort of think and reflect on life. But this time I did it with an extra bottle of wine, and I just sat there sort of drinking most of it. And, and, you know, it really dawned on me. It's like, you know, I'm out here and, you know, just, just had a bottle of wine with my wife and I probably had two thirds of that. And now I'm out here with a whole other bottle that I've just about finished, you know, in this, in this beautiful part of the world. Why am I doing this? And it, it was a feeling of almost just real anger with myself that I, that I'd fallen back. And, you know, I, I, I thought at that moment about 2017 and how great it had been, what a good year it was. And suddenly I'm out there just drinking myself into oblivion by myself behind my house. And it, you know, it was a feeling of almost self-disgust and, and anger. And then, as I as I walked back into the house, there was there was a little bit of wine left in the bottle. I just I just tipped it out, you know, with a sort of almost theatrical motion of disgust. And and I walked in and said, right, I'm I'm stopping again. Did you say and that yeah, to, the next to day, your wife and yourself, or you're just to yourself? Not at that point. Not at that point. Just okay, just yourself. Just myself. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. But um, back it up outside. So yeah. What do you think was different yeah. with that moment? You walk out. You're like, I'm done. You dump out this wine in the back in the back of your dream house. Because I I did that several times, dozens of times, where I dumped out booze and made the internal declaration like, I'm done. I can't. I can't live with myself anymore. Yeah, I'll go four or five days a week, and then I'm back at it. What do you think it was? And oftentimes we hear the moment of clarity where it's actually when the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, there's a link between the two. Uh, yeah, what do you think was the difference that time? It's hard to, to pinpoint it or to, to clearly explain, but there was just really a feeling that, um, that I wasn't doing this out of any sense of joy of, of enjoying that bottle of wine. You know, I'm out there having a second bottle on just an ordinary night at home, drinking just because I'm, I'm compelled to do so. I was out there, it was, it was late at night, I'm, I'm an you know, early to bed person normally, so I was just getting more and more tired, more and more drunk, and, and just losing my, you know, any clarity in my head. And I don't know, it was just a, a dawning of a moment of, I've, I've just got to stop this. It, it's, it's not doing me any good. Uh, you know, I thought back to 2017, and it's like, why can't I have that life again? It's tough to put into words that moment of clarity when we just know, and most people on this podcast have said it the same way you did. They say, you know what? It was just a feeling and I knew it was different. And yeah, it's hard to put that in words, but it's, it's good yeah. to hear that you experienced that. Um, you know, in your email, you mentioned something different this time that there's no longer hopes of moderation. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Look in 2017, you know, when I was reading that website, Hello Sunday Morning, a lot of people would go to AA and, and talk about it. And I, I really just didn't like the idea. I didn't like the idea of, you know, that there was the religious aspect, which isn't really something I'm into. And then there was, you know, this whole surrender thing, which which I just thought was corny and cheesy. But, but fast forwarding to 2019, I, I, I think for me, I, I kind of now get what that surrender is about. Because 2000, let's, let's just 
quickly go backwards. 2017, I thought, I'm going to go a year dry and then I'll have a new relationship with alcohol and then I'll be one of these people who can have two drinks and stop and, and life will be great. In, in 2019, I, I, I just came to the point where it's like it, it hasn't worked. You know, I've got decades of evidence to show that it, it just doesn't work. Uh, it, you know, it, it's over. And that, that surrender for me was, was just that realization that whatever happens, I can't moderate. I just have to throw that idea out, give up on it and give in and go, right, you know, no more alcohol, that, that's it. So, so now what, you know? I'm, I'm familiar with Hello Sunday Morning. It's a, I've heard that resource on this podcast before. Checked out a, a couple of times, awesome resource. But you, you mentioned you had the idea that you could change your relationship with alcohol. Was that your own idea or did you actually read in a blog somewhere several success stories of people going three months, six months, a year from alcohol and then going back and drinking normally? You know, those success stories were, were quite rare. I, I think I did see one or two in my readings on that website, but it, I, mainly it was my own idea. I just thought, look, if you can do a dry year, that, that'll just ingrain new habits and, uh, and, and change the way you think, and it'll stop every event that you go to being associated with alcohol. Well, it's, um, it's sound but, and logical yeah, that, thinking that, with any other issue in life we encounter. That would make sense. And, and, and Mark, yeah, I, right. I did have a success story. I was gone. I was... I was absent for two and a half years, and I had a success story for about three days. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it didn't, didn't last much longer yeah. than that. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, I always have to take it with a grain of salt. I have read success stories. I have been emailed by several listeners, not in like a uh, pugnacious fashion or to like be argumentative, but they say, hey, I went this long without alcohol, and now I can drink normally. I have had a couple more people reach back to me afterward and and, and say like, and fill me in on what happened after that. And they're not they're not success stories that's what i'm trying to say yeah 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 so i mean i i think if you're someone who feels you have to take a year off your drinking it's unlikely you're the sort of person who is able to moderate yeah that's a big value bomb right there mark that i'm sure some listeners didn't want to hear but that right there if you let that sink in that could prevent a lot of pain and turmoil i know it would have for me yeah so april 30th 2019 you get sober. What was that first week like? What was uh, what was different this time around? It was just that feeling of right. This this time it's not a a twelve month test of of willpower. This time I, I've just got to accept that that's it for me and alcohol. Let me ask this question, Mark. I just yeah. heard anxiety rise for some of our listeners right there because you know previously it's like okay I was going three months, six months. This time I'm not going twelve months. And the back of your mind is like, oh shit, I'm going the rest of my life. Did that yeah. enter? And we you're like, uh oh, or you're like, or, or, or it could be more comforting to know like the option of, you know, no return doesn't even exist. Like, like permanently burning the ships. Yeah. I think there is something to be said for, for casting it off permanently. That idea crossed my mind in 2017 at that, at that point, it was just unfathomable. You know, the, the idea of going the rest of my life without, you know, a pint of Guinness or um, a wine at events and that sort of thing. It was like, look, I can do this for a year, but I, I'm not giving up on alcohol forever. Like, I, I want it to be a part of my life. In the future, I just want it to be a more sensible and moderated part of my life. Whereas this time, I, you know, it, it was actually liberating, I think, to get to a point where it's like, I, I've had enough. I, I just don't want to be involved with it anymore. It frees um, up so much mental bandwidth because you're no longer thinking yeah. about, well, or else I could drink. It just eliminates that. Yeah, and I mean, in a lot of ways, com completely giving up is, is easier than moderating. You know, because you don't have decisions to make. You, you, your decision has been made. You've taken away the option. So there's none of these management schemes you're putting in place or, or worrying about going two or three drinks too far. It's a, it's a far simpler approach, I suppose. 
you know, the idea of it, I can see why it can be frightening to, to think about giving it up forever. And I've definitely had that in the past, including 2017. And it just wasn't the thought that I that I had in my mind. But um, but this time I feel really comfortable about it and, and even excited about it, to be honest. You mentioned you set up accountability this time around. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I guess the, the first sort of month or so, maybe month or six weeks, I, you know, I binge listened on these, these podcasts of yours. Uh, so I think it was, you know, probably on April 30 or May the 1st where I, where I found these podcasts. And you talked about how it was, it was a three-part approach, right? The physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Yeah. And a big part of the mental seemed to be about accountability. And almost, you know, without exception, everyone, every interview that happened had some kind of underlying theme of that accountability there. For me, this was the, the most frightening part of, of what I'm doing now was because accountability was going to involve telling people that I had a problem and I couldn't drink and this wasn't a 12-month health kick. This this is me admitting that drinking's a problem and I have to stop it. And and I was, you know, that, that stigma is, is just as real for me as it is for everyone. The, the idea filled me with terror of, of telling people that I have a drinking problem or, or using the A word, you know, telling people I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> what um, were those first couple conversations like? Yeah, so the first one was with my wife, actually. And, uh, you know, it took me four or five weeks to, to build up the courage to have that. And partly I think I wanted to just get a get a bit of a sobriety period in there before I had the conversation. We were out for a coffee without the kids, and, and I, I just kind of knew I had to tell her because, you know, we, we had a wine tasting coming up, and there was there was no sort of, you know, it, it's hard to come up with a reason why you're not going to do a wine tasting, right, because people don't have much wine at those things generally. So it was it was time to, to just, just fess up about it, and uh, I was terrified. I You know, I, I thought that she would be horrified to, to hear that she's she's married to someone with a drinking problem, even though, you know, she's seen a lot of my, my misbehavior in the past. But I, I more or less just opened up. I said, so you'll have noticed I've, um, I've not been drinking much lately. And she goes, yeah, you're doing another sort of dry period. And I said, well, actually, I've made a bit of a decision that I, I think it's best if I stop drinking. And, and she was a little surprised, but, but more curious than anything. I you know, just sort of laid it out. I said, you know, I, I feel like I've come to a place where, where I've developed an addiction and that when I start, I, I can't stop. And I, I think the only way for me to deal with this is to give it up completely. And, you know, I think my hands were actually shaking as I, I said this, but her response was that she was really proud of me for making the decision. So I almost felt like crying, to be honest with you. It was, um, you know, it was just such a relief to, to know that she was supportive of it. Mark, and, what did and, you feel like after that? It, yeah, it was, it was a really good feeling, actually. You know, it was just this sense of relief and, and, and support and uh, just an enormous weight lifted off my shoulder to have admitted to it and, the, and the, to have, for her to have been so supportive of it. And, you know, I, I think she, she had a little moment of mourning where, where it's like, well, now we can't have a bottle of wine together on the couch and that sort of thing. And, I, you know, I said, well, I can still have something else to drink. You can have your wine. But, um, but she got past that pretty quickly. And it was just, you know, so firstly, it was that huge amount of relief. But secondly, it also, you know, made the idea of sobriety now really, it felt like it really locked it in because there is that accountability. It's like, right, your significant other knows that you're not a person who can drink anymore. And having having that in place, it, it really makes it real. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a hugely powerful psychological effect, that, that kind of accountability where, you know, suddenly now I can't, I can't hide my heavy drinking by having some light drinking in front of her and then, and then going out the back with an extra bottle afterwards. It does make um, it real because you can't unhave that conversation. Yeah. That's, that's right. The genie's out of the bottle, right? The genie's out of the and, bottle. Um, 
and it, it, it really, it, I really felt as we as we went walking around the, the city after that, I, I really just felt, well, now it's going to be a lot easier to to do this. So, you know, I, I, I guess I can't overemphasize enough how, how important that accountability is and, and how much stronger it makes the, the whole sobriety situation. So walk us through another encounter where you told somebody else about your drinking. Yeah, look, I've, I've still got a few people on my list to tell, but I have told some guys at work who, who were almost kind of, you know, oh, oh, cool, that's good. Hey, look, it's, it's raining. You know, they, uh, they were just, just fine with it. And again, I sort of, I expected a few of them to, to try and talk me out of it or, you know, that some of them would ask questions like, well, why can't you just have two or three or, or whatever? But yeah, but generally it's been like, well, you know, okay, cool. That's great. When's our next camping trip? You know, yeah. So, so it's been, again, I, I've dreaded all of these conversations and, and you know, I've, I've had a bit of a cutthroat attitude about it in terms of, you know, if, if someone's not on board with it, I'm, I'm happy to lose them. Yeah, but so far, I have, it's a fantastic had to use that because that we're given. Yeah, well, every, everyone so far that hasn't come into play because nobody's reacted badly uh, at all. And I'm not so, surprised at all by these reactions, especially your wife's. Most likely, she married you, Mark, for you, not because you drink. So I'm not surprised yeah. with that at all. And listeners, that is the common reaction. And if somebody does have an adverse reaction, they're not supportive. Like Mark just mentioned, those people need to go. Sobriety still gave you the gift of clearing space, removing those people in your life. And so, Mark, since April 30th, 2019, I know life has presented challenges has there been intense cravings? Has there been a moment where you want to drink, but you didn't? Talk to us about that. There haven't been, the, the cravings haven't been too bad at all, which, which is interesting because, um, you know, uh, historically when I've done dry spells, they've definitely been there. This weekend just gone, actually. I, I had a lot of time by myself, so my wife was, was away on a trip. I was at home with the kids and, you know, in the old days, this would have been a little bit of the, the cats away, the mice will play sort of, you know, a lot of time at home, uh, didn't have to drive anywhere, a lot of opportunity. And, you know, the thought crossed my mind, but I just kind of let it let it ride and then it, then it dissipated. So apart from that, to be honest with you, the, the cravings, uh, they haven't been too bad at all. One thing I, I will say, and I, I know, Paul, this isn't something you, you're um, necessarily a fan of, but I, but I do drink... Uh, um, the non-alcoholic beer and wine. I think it has helped in my case just because, it, it, you know, it, it, there's that ritual and that taste that goes with it. And with those, I really can have one or two and, and stop. And uh, the 0.5% or so, you know, I, I, I do remember that story about the guy who went and had 30 or 40 of them. You know, I, I just don't, don't see that happening to me. But it, it, does, it does help with the cravings. If you can find a, a good non-alcoholic beer, they're, they're pretty rare, but I have found one. So. Yeah, Heineken actually has one that's 0.0, .0 and I plugged it on this podcast. And I'll plug it again. Good for them, recognizing that uh, there needed to be a 0.0, .0 NA beer on the market, and they did it. So good for Heineken. Yeah, I'm not— Okay, I haven't tried that one. No, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. And I'm not—like, you got to be aware of that. Yeah, because, like, if you have 10 non-alcoholic beers in a sitting, you can get a—it's like having a couple beers. Also, I don't like the taste. I found out that I usually just like beer to get drunk. And so when I have had non-alcoholic beers, I struggle to finish the first one. And I, I rarely go out and purchase them. It's usually when I show up at a party and say, hey, but no, Paul's coming. And it's it's so cool that people think of me before coming to a party and they buy NA beers. But yeah, I mean, it's you do you, Mark. Like I, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but I also don't know Mark's journey, your journey better than you. And if it helps you get through a craving and you're not drinking 40 or 50 of them in a night, go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it seems to be working. So there's that. And if I'm out at the pub now, I'll, I'll usually just get a tonic, no, no gin, just, just a tonic. And 
you know, that, that seems to be going well as well. It means you can go to a pub and not have to worry about, you know, well, what am I going to have to drink? And there's going to be, you know, pressure to have a beer or a wine. So, yeah. yeah. And sometimes listeners email me and say, hey, is it possible to get sober without AA? And you mentioned it earlier, um, but I don't, it doesn't sound like it's part of your story, is it? Uh, look, I, I think it will be going forward. I have been to one, j- just one meeting. So it wasn't in 2017. I didn't, didn't like the idea of it. But um, this, year, this year I went. It was, just a, it was a Monday afternoon. Uh, it was a quiet afternoon at work. And, and I looked up a meeting and there was one nearby. So I went to that. It was an interesting experience, actually. And I'm, I, I'm glad I went. I, I was nervous as all hell. Uh, my, my hands were shaking and I, I knew that I was going to tell a bit of my story. And it was the first time and, and maybe the only time actually that I'd said out loud that I'm an alcoholic. And I, I think just that moment of admitting that as part of that surrender was also very important for me. And it was, um, you know, I told a bit of my story. Everyone was very welcoming and very nice. So I'm, I'm glad I went. I think I will go again. Whether I'm going to do the 12 steps, look, it's, it's just too early to say at this point. But I, I do I do think part of my strategy needs to be to to engage with other alcoholics and, and that might be the, the the channel which I do it through. Look, I've broken up with the word alcoholic several times on this podcast. I write about it in my book, but there is something empowering saying that out loud, saying, Hey, my name's Paul, I'm an alcoholic, or just saying it. Because it's like now what? What you got? I just threw it out there. <laughs> Didn't kill me. I'm still alive. It's empowering. I remember the first time I said it too, and it felt good. It felt good not to, I felt more authentic. Let's put it that way. Just it is yeah. what it is. It doesn't define me. I, I, I think that word these days carries more, carries a heavy weight with a stigma. But yeah, I mean, good good for you for, for doing that. It's awesome you went to a meeting. You might not go back anytime soon, but you know where it is, and you might find yourself in a difficult situation in the future. Nice job, Mark. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm glad I went and people gave me their numbers, which which I still have and said, call anytime, you know, if you're struggling and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of watch this space. I haven't really sort of landed how I'm going to do this yet. I'm, I'm just over seven weeks in, which which is, you know, great and, and absolutely encourage anyone who's made it that long. But in some ways, if you're giving it up forever, you can kind of look at seven weeks and also say, well, you haven't even started, you know. So um, it's still, I still think of it very much as early days and I'm not in any urgent rush to go out and join every AA meeting around, but um, but I'm, I'm still thinking it through and, and working out how I'm going to build this in. Sure, I agree with that, but I also want to make sure you're not setting the trap, and it doesn't sound like you are, because this is what I did. I told myself, well, when I get three months, when I get six months, when I get a year, everything's going to be okay. What I didn't realize, and it sounds like you're doing a better job of this than I did, was that at seven weeks, I could have been happy. I could have been fine. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually try not to count the days too much. I did for this because it does provide the listener with a bit of context. But I'm trying not to think of it necessarily in terms of racking up days. Although you know, when 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 I notice the milestones, I, I give myself a pat on the back. But yeah, I guess I'm trying to trying to view it as a, a change in the way I, I live my life rather than necessarily about racking up dry time. Yeah. How about the kids? How have your kids reacted? Has your relationship with them changed any? Are they on board? I haven't told them they're, they're uh, four years old and eight years old, so you know, oh, okay. I'm not sure to be honest how much they've really noticed it. Yeah, but I, it's it's good that you bring it up because it is one of those things where you know a few years from now when when they're getting pressured to drink and tempted to drink, I, I'm kind of looking forward to being able to tell them parts of my story. Certainly not all the parts, but you know to be able to say to them, look, you know. I, I've had my problems with it. Here's, here's some of the things I experienced rather than being, you know, a parent who, who has a few drinks themselves but telling your kids, go, you know, don't go drinking. I can actually relate my own negative experiences and be, and be open about that. And, and hopefully that's something useful as, as they pass through their teens. Yeah, with seven weeks of sobriety, 
What is on your bucket list? What do you hope to accomplish in this new alcohol-free life? Um, look, I'm, I'm really enjoying just, just the sim- simple pleasures of, of sober life, you know. So I've always been a morning person, but now I'm waking up half an hour or an hour earlier and I just get my quiet time. I get a bit of reading done. I get a bit of exercise done. I go to work now and, you know, I, I used to dread one of my team members coming up with questions because I had to think on the spot and my, my, my mind was always foggy. But now, you know, I, I'm sailing through the day a lot better handling things. Yeah, just, just having more money in my pocket. Being able to really engage with people properly, it's its just all of these little simple pleasures, they really add up and they really uh, build into each other. So, you know, I don't have grand plans to go traveling or um, or anything like that, but it's, it's just I'm really enjoying each day and, and the simple pleasures it brings when, when you're sober. And Mark, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What was your worst memory from drinking? Getting really, really pass out drunk on my 40th and being told the next day that my oldest daughter, who was five at the time, was, was looking at me with a sense of, of distress. That was really hard to take. Yeah. When was your oh shit moment indicating you should probably quit drinking? Well, I think it was that moment out in the backyard <laughs> where I was sitting out there with a second bottle for, for no good reason at all. Sometimes yeah. these answers answer the next question also. <laughs> uh, what's your plan moving forward, Mark? How are you going to get uh, week eight, month two, month three? Yeah, so I've got a bit more accountability to, to put in place. So there's a few more people on my list to, to talk to about it. I, I really do want to engage more with other alcoholics. So I've got your podcast and a couple of online communities, but I, I want to, whether it's through AA or, or Smart Recovery or something, I want to want to be engaging in real life with other alcoholics as well. Yeah, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Um, and what other resources have been helpful? I'm on a sort of blog website called Booze Musings. So, and I've got a few things on my reading list. So I want to want to read um, Alcohol, a Love Story. And there was a book one of your previous guests mentioned about. Uh, it was written by an ultramarathon runner who um, who's had problems with alcohol as well. So a few books and um, yeah, these podcasts and um, yeah, the Booze Musings website. Yeah, Rich Roll came to mind when you said ultramarathon runner who's who had problems with alcohol. Yeah, I think that's the guy. Could be Rich Roll too. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best advice you've ever received? A couple of, couple of your previous guests have, have dropped what I view as value bombs. So there was a guy who said, um, you know, when I think about drinking, I, I just play the tape. So he thinks about the, um, you know, starting it off and having a 15-minute nice buzz and then what happens from there. So going past the buzz and slurring and becoming foggy and the hangover and all of the, the bad things that follow. So so that play the tape advice is, is really good. Someone else said, remember who you are. And I, I think you, you can interpret that in all kinds of good ways. So, so I, I try and sort of say that to myself each day. And there was something you used to say in the early podcast as well along the lines of, if I want that, then I can't have this. Oh, that's so, right. Yeah. yeah, I had that phrase typed up. And I looked at it every day for the first year in my office. Yeah, I forgot. I'm yeah. sorry. Using that. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that says, says a huge amount. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> and uh, before we depart, give listeners your own customizer. You might be an alcoholic if one, Mark. You might be an alcoholic if when it's your, your shout for beers, you buy yourself two and drink one before you've left the bar just so you can fit an extra one in in, in each time it's your round. Yeah. Well played, Mark. <laughs> Good job. Ah, <laughs> oh, Mark, great chat with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. This past May, over Memorial Day weekend, I had the pleasure of attending a silent meditation retreat guided by Tibetan Buddhist Anam Thubten with the Dharmada Foundation out of Point Richmond, California. Now, I would highly recommend a meditation retreat. I'm not sure if I'd recommend starting off with a week-long silent one, 
As I mentioned earlier, it can be a total shock to the system. And although I felt confident I had a, an established meditation practice, 30 plus hours of meditation, five and a half days of no talking, no technology, no books, no audio books, no music, no internet. Yeah. It was a total shock to my system. When I initially got there, I was like, well, you know, I can be silent for five and a half days. Internet thing, oh, that kind of sucks. But uh, you know, I brought some good books. I've got some audio books I want to catch up on. And then Anam Thupten says, and no audio books, no reading. I was like, oh, shit. What have I gotten myself into? Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of firsts during this week. It's been probably 37 years since I went that long without talking. But surprisingly, I was never bored. Okay, so there were some tough meditations where I'm like, all right, 45 minutes, uh, this thing cannot end fast enough. But I was never bored, like I just said. Right around hour 38 of silence, mindfulness became the default mode. Everything became entertaining. While eating lunch, I realized I had 17 peas on my plate. I cherished every bite. I noticed a bird walk straight up a tree. Not only can they fly, yeah, they can walk up trees. Crazy. At the end of day three, I noticed that things started to look differently. The sky, the trees, the plants. It's a tough one to describe, but things didn't look the same as I had previously viewed them. And the reason for this, which Anam Dupton talked about in one of his teachings, is you start to look at things without labels. There's a space that's inserted in the mind. For example, you look at a tree and you observe it for a couple seconds or maybe even a fraction of a second before the mind jumps in and says, that's a ponderosa, Pablo. That's what that is. Oh, look at that. That's an ant. That's a bird. That's a sunset. Those are clouds. So you start to view these things in your external nature before the mind can jump in and put a label to. It makes everything more vibrant. I'd say around day four, I was able to see the false self. And so I've talked about this concept on the podcast, about the ego being a false self, as in it doesn't really exist. Russell Brand talks about this in his book, Recovery. Several spiritual leaders talk about the false self, the ego. But I was able to see it. If you go that long without other people reinforcing your name, saying, hey, Paul, how's the podcast going? How's your dog, Ben? What's new with you? How's the house? How's the job? How's this? How's this? How's this? Well, your identity, it starts to dissolve. This is both liberating and it's terrifying at the same time. The next week at work, I experienced an intense focus like I'd never experienced before. However, there was an anchoring the final week because the why had surfaced the week before. Ironically, this meditation retreat took place at a Lutheran church camp. At ages 8 and 9, or maybe 9 and 10, I had two of the best weeks of my life at a, at a church camp in the summer. In, in, I think it's outside of Pocatello, actually in uh, Ketchum, Idaho. Yeah, that's what it is, in Ketchum, Idaho. And I remember in the last day of the retreat, walking into the cabin, and I was the only one who hadn't packed their sleeping bag up uh, in the cabin, so just my stuff. And when I walked in, it hit me right in the gut. I went right back to age nine, age 10. It happened both summers in a row where I walked into the cabin as a young Paul and I saw only my stuff was on the cabin bunks. And I knew I didn't want to pack my stuff up. I didn't want to leave summer camp. I didn't want to go back to Salt Lake City, Utah, where I wasn't accepted for who I was. 
Um, and I sat down in the cabin and I cried. I purged it out for probably four to five minutes. It was intense. Yeah. So there was an anchoring the following week. The why had surfaced, but nothing bad happened. There was no malfunction. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and I think I will be doing another meditation retreat, perhaps longer. I know that sounds crazy, but the inner peace continued to build throughout each day. So I'm curious to what a two week silent meditation retreat would look like. I don't think I have the guts to do that yet, but who knows? Now, some experienced meditators have experienced mystical blast offs during meditation, similar to blast offs you can experience with ayahuasca and other plant medicines, but it can be done through meditation. Now, Dr. Sue, who I interviewed in episode 214 at one of her retreats, she spoke about during a blast off or one of her mystical experiences, she went back to when the pyramids were built. And then she talks about how she took a trip to Egypt about two years or three years after that. And she was able to read the hieroglyphs. In fact, she was telling the guides when she was taking a guided tour of the pyramid, she was saying, okay, well, this is how I see it. And, and some of this stuff was later confirmed the way she saw it was, was correct. So it's profound. It's mystical. Does it all make sense to me? It doesn't. And it doesn't have to make sense. After the week-long meditation retreat, I, I left with a sense of I'm missing something. <laughs> There's something out there that I'm not conceptually grasping. But I think that might be how it's supposed to be. I don't want to have all the answers. I'm okay with that. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It took a lot of preparation to put it together. The meditation, this could be a three hour long podcast episode. I simply wanted to give you all an introductory experience to what meditation can look like. So if you are new to meditation, go slow, be kind on yourself. It's going to be uncomfortable at first. All of this journey is at first. Okay, recovery elevator. It all starts from the inside out. We can do this. I love you guys. 